Well, it's certainly good to be here tonight, and I'm appreciative for each one of you that has made your choice uh, to be here. Uh, I don't know if I can see that clock or not. I hope I can. Does it flash or something when it's time's up? Yeah, I can see it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't have to if you don't want to. Um, I want to express my appreciation to the committee and also to the church. Uh, for giving me this opportunity to speak to you this evening. I'm certainly honored and, and humbled uh, by the opportunity. And I will pray that the good Lord will just bless us tonight as we look into a portion of His Holy Word. It's always my desire that the Lord receive honor and glory and praise. Uh, I want the Lord satisfied and pleased with the things that I say tonight. Uh, I hope also the church is uh, uh, pleased with the things that, that I have to say as well. Um, my subject has to do with Tamar and, him, and her being the daughter of, uh, daughter-in-law of Judah. Uh, I'll be speaking from the 38th chapter of Genesis. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, I hope that you already received uh, an outline. I have a little bit of a disclaimer. Some of the things that I have to say tonight are a little bit a little bit hard, and, and I hope that uh, uh, you're aware of that. This is kind of a difficult chapter uh, to deal with, and so kind of you be advised concerning uh, some of the things that I may need to say. Um, I pondered these passages of scriptures for quite a while and studied them extensively and the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night and I don't know how it is with you, but when the Lord wakes you up in the middle of the night, you got to get up. You got to write, jot some things down and so I've kind of changed or altered the, the title a little bit and I'm going to speak about uh, the narrative and the theological nuances in the study of Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah. Now, by way of introduction, just let me say this. The Bible uh, presents the most realistic depiction of human sinfulness, even when the depths of our depravity are hidden in our private affairs. In the 38th chapter of Genesis, we read of a woman by the name of Tamar that is physically, emotionally, and sexually abused, who plays the harlot to sleep with her father-in-law, becomes pregnant with twins, one of which becomes part of the Messianic line. Uh, Gen uh, this whole chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38, uh, it's, scandal, it's like a scandal-ridden tabloid. It's almost like uh, watching the Jerry Springer show. And this chapter and chapters like this, uh, they're not in the Bible for our amusement. Uh, they're not in the Bible to justify any kind of sinful behavior that's going on in our lives or our churches or in the world at large. They rather mark out the workings of God's sovereignty in accomplishing His purposes in the depths of the mire of human depravity and free will. For me, this highlights the reason Tamar is mentioned in the Messianic line in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3. I want to give a bit of a disclaimer. Okay, 
The church of the true and living God believes that if you are sexually or physically abused, you need to prosecute that person to the fullest extent of the law, no matter who they are. I've been preaching over 44 years now, and I've only one time ever referred to the 38th chapter of Genesis. So I pray that the Lord will help me as I just simply not necessarily go through and read the 38th chapter. I think the story speaks for itself. You can read the narrative. Just read the 38th chapter of Genesis and uh, you'll understand the unfolding of these events. So, I just simply want to go through some of the narrative nuances. I want to point out a few things here and there. I'm not going to point out everything, just a few things here and there, first of all. The 38th chapter of Genesis is a historical parenthesis. If you look at the last verse of the 37th chapter and look at the first verse of the 39th chapter, they both say the exact same thing. They tell us how that Joseph was brought into Egypt and sold to Potiphar. And I want to remind you also that Judah, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery to begin with. So when we lay Joseph's life and the life of Judah side by side, and that seems to be what the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit is doing for us in this 38th chapter, we find Joseph experienced an evil while he remained righteous. And Judah experiences evil while committing evil. But in both cases, the purpose of God was not prevented in either one. God fulfilled His purpose. Look in verse 1 of chapter 38 and verse 1. It says, at that time. Notice that phrase, at that time. We could say at the same time that Joseph was down in Egypt. It covers the same period of time, about 22 years. And it says in verse 1 that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hiram. So after the sale of Joseph into slavery, Judah strikes out on his own and he abandons the whole covenant agenda of the house of Jacob. Now this language where it says Judah went down or turned aside, it's not good. It's more than just a geographical change. It's a spiritual change. He went spiritually down. And one of the first things he does, as you read the next couple of verses, is he violates God's will for marriage. Now, it was crystal clear in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were forbidden to marry Canaanite women. And here in these verses, you look in verse 3, he just sees this Canaanite woman and he took her and he went into her. That's what it says in verse 3. And what this suggests to me is a marriage that's based on chemistry rather than character. He entered into a marriage based only on sexual desire, which in turn produced sons that were sexually deviant. 
Now, we live in a society that is obsessed with sexual appeal. With little thought for character. And let me just say this. A marriage based on chemistry rather than character, especially in the life of a Christian, never ends well. So this unnamed wife, she has three sons. The first one's name was Ur. The second one was Onan. And the third one was Shelah. And Judah gives his firstborn son a wife by the name of Tamar. And here's where the trouble begins for Tamar. Look in verse 7. It tells us that Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Now, it turns out that this is the very first individual singled out and put to death by God in the entire Bible. And if you sit down and you start running cross-references with this verse 7, it means that he's probably worse or doing worse to Tamar than what, if that's possible, than what occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah. So, Judah appeals to this prevailing practice of the culture by asking his next older son, Onan, to fulfill his duties in verse 8. Now, this is what is known as uh, the leveret marriage. It's not a custom today, but it was a, a custom that they used in that day. Let me explain just uh, how this works. When a man dies before he produced an heir, it was the duty of the brother, usually the next brother in the line of marriage, to marry his wife. Now, there were two main ideas in this practice. First was that when a man died, his name and his legacy and his inheritance would be carried forward in his son. And secondly, it was an act of mercy for the childless widow. Because a childless childless widow in that day was the fastest way to poverty and abuse. This practice is enshrined in Deuteronomy. You might want to write these these passages on your notes. This is enshrined in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. So the leveret marriage produced both an heir for the deceased and it also produced a home for the widow. I guess the best way for us to understand it is like when I was young and had a young family, I purchased life insurance. And I always thought that if I were to die, my wife and my children would be taken care of. That's the kind of law that this was. Now, Onan, the second son, he could have refused. But if he did, she would have the right to take off his sandals and, I don't know, beat him on the head and spit in his face. You can read those laws in the book of Deuteronomy. There was a lot of social shame attached to refusing to step up 
and do a leveret marriage. Onan, he agrees to do it. But at the same time, he uses Tamar for his own sexual gratification, using her in, a, in private uh, for his own desires, and at the same time sub subjecting her to public scorn. You can read in verse 9 what he was doing. I'm not going to read it. You can read it if you'd like there in Genesis chapter 38. But he's doing this in a way that ensured she would never get pregnant. Now let me just, a side note, let me say this. This passage has nothing to do with birth control and has nothing to do with family planning. Okay? It has nothing to do with what your grandfather said might make you go blind. This is Onan being a sleazebag. And God was so angry about this cruel deception and disregard uh, for the covenant seed, putting carnal pleasures above spiritual things, that he too was slain of the Lord. So, there remains one son left. Shalah. Notice in verse 11. Judah is afraid now of Tamar. <laughs> He's already lost two sons. And so he was afraid his third son would also die if he married Tamar. And so he says he intends to give his son, but really he had no intentions whatsoever. So he sends Tamar home. And when he sends her home, she remains in this perpetual widowhood. You could say he abandoned Tamar into widowed exile. And she really had no legal recourse. And her biological clock was ticking. As I studied these passages of Scripture and thought about Tamar, I, I began to ask myself the question, how much did she really know about the, the covenant with Abraham? How much did she know about Jehovah God and the influences upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I jumped down to verse 26 and I asked myself the question, why did Judah say after, at the end of all this, that Tamar was more righteous than he was. Now it seems that Tamar knew her father-in-law pretty well. She anticipated what he would want when he went on this business trip, when he went to shear the sheep. And let me just say this, Canaanite shear sheeping was a lot different than Jewish shear sheeping. The Canaanites, it was full of debauchery and drunken, drunkenness and etc. And this explains a lot as well. So she knew her father-in-law, what he would want on this business trip. Uh, so she positions herself along the route as a prostitute. Now, look folks, 
Judah at this point was a full-blown Canaanite. And Tamar's aim was not to enter into prostitution. She doesn't do that. She goes back to her father's house and puts back on her widow's garments. That's not what Tamar's trying to do here. Her plan is to gain what had been promised to her by Judah. Now, we're very tempted in reading the 38th chapter of Genesis to think poorly of Tamar. But she's actually showing more commitment to the covenant line of Jacob than Judah did. She was trying to do the right thing in the wrong way, and it was sin. It was sin. Well, let's fast forward three months. Distressing news comes to Judah. It's really shocking. Tamar... Her, uh, his daughter-in-law had been immoral and now is pregnant. Look in verse 24. Judah is furious. <laughs> okay? And he says, bring her out. Let's just burn her alive. Burn her alive? Really? The irony is pretty rich in these passages of Scripture. Because she comes before him and says, I'm pregnant from the man who owns these things. And she holds forth the cord, the seal, and the staff. Now, Judah had to be drunk. That'd be like you giving your passport and your credit card and your driver's license to somebody. But this was uh, the agreement that they had entered into uh, until he provided a goat. For, this, for her services. When you go back to the previous chapter and you see the sad spectacle when Jacob uh, is uh, receiving Joseph's coat of many colors that's stained with the blood of a goat, that's the very phrase that's used. They lay that code out before him and say, who does this belong to? And of course, he acknowledged, well, this is Joseph's code. Something changes in Judah, okay, during the, I don't know if this is one of, one of the reasons for it, or the cause of it, or whether he was convicted at this point or not. Uh, but it seems to me that after this event, something changes in this man, Judah. By the time the famine hits the land, surprisingly, Judah, he's back with the covenant family. He's back with his brethren. And if you jump over to the 44th chapter of Genesis in verse 33, he offers his own life to save Benjamin during the saga with Joseph. I don't know if Tamar played a role in the conversion of Judah. I don't know. I know she was a very, she didn't have fertility problems or anything like that. She gives birth to twins. And Pharaoh is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. 
And the tribe of Judah on the brink of extinction is preserved. And there would be 12 tribes of Israel rather than only 11 tribes of Israel. All right, so there are some of the narrative nuances of this chapter. Let me talk a little bit about the theological nuances. When you step back from this chapter and you see it in relationship to the overall circumstances of the Bible, I can't read this chapter without seeing the overall working of God's providence in fulfilling His promise in a fallen world full of depravity and human will. This this chapter is simply another extension of the war between the serpent and the seed that started in the Garden of Eden. God would accomplish His promises in the sewage of sin and at the same time, listen to me, punish sin, judge sin, and remain holy. Let me say this again. These these awful, terrible situations of sin and, and debauchery that we read about in the Old Testament, they're not for our amusement. The main point of this chapter is showing us the depraved heart of Judah and this line of Judah standing on the the brink of extinction. And every one of us that are students of Scripture and know the Bible, we know that King David was to come through the line of Judah. Not only that, we know that the the promise, the prophecy, the commitment of God is that our Messiah, our Redeemer, and our Savior would be of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And if Satan or the sinful depravity of man could cause one single solitary prophecy of Jesus Christ to fail, listen to me, the whole work of redemption would fall. If just one failed, the whole work of redemption would fall. You guys do know how the Old Testament saints got saved, don't you? They trusted those promises that God gave, amen? They believed. Abraham believed God. What did he believe? He believed those promises, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. This chapter is just one of many places where God accomplishes his sovereign purpose in the midst of an evil, willful rebellion of humanity. Now, I've got to hurry. My time's escaping me, and I want to keep Don Curtis in my good graces. Now, there's a lot of different camps concerning the mechanics of God's sovereignty. And many of them, in doing so, becoming a distinct camp of explaining how God's sovereignty works, they 
they reveal a different, listen to me, they reveal a different God than how God reveals himself in Scripture. Some hold to a God that programs every event that takes place in a person's life. It's called determinist, fatalist, these, these folks. They even contend that God is the author of the sins that we read of in the 38th chapter of Genesis. They basically say this, God can't give a man free will and still accomplish his purposes and be sovereign. But I contend that this chapter proves otherwise. The evil that we read of in Scripture, it shows us that God is accomplishing His purpose of redemption in the midst of free will, of wicked, rebellious, fallen human beings. Now, I'm not going to go through all the views. My time's about escaping me. Most of us have heard about them, the Calvinist view. They're determinists. They, they think that God determines everything. You know, if you, know, you get uh, uh, molested or something like that, well, that, God determined that. God purposed that for you. I don't believe a word of it. God is not the author of sin. Okay? Then you have the Arminians. <laughs> I was going to go through and explain all these, but it took me a little time. I got them on the outline. You could just look them up. But there's all these camps. There's like... Open theism, you know, uh, that group say, says, well, God really doesn't have foreknowledge. Yes, he does. God knows everything. You got this Molinist uh, approach to the sovereignty of God, and it hinges upon God accomplishing certain things based upon contingencies. In other words, if this doesn't work out, he changes his way and does it this way, and he knows all these, I don't know, this was some monk somewhere in a cave, contemplating his navel and came up with this. I don't know. <clears throat> I brought a book with me, and I believe every missionary Baptist needs one of these, especially if you're a preacher. It's the Christian religion in its doctrinal expression by Edgar Young Mullins. You need this book. There's probably one in Old Union's library. You can get it on Google uh, Books. Around page 338, and he, as far as I'm concerned, I know he was the professor and president of Southern Theological Seminary in the 1920s in Louisville, Kentucky. I know that. As far as I'm concerned, he was the last missionary Baptist scholar we've ever had. The first hundred pages, you can find them on my website. You know what he proves, the first hundred pages of this book? That you must have an experience with God. Or you can't understand Scripture. <laughs> you certainly can't understand doctrine. But he warns us. And if you want me to send it to you, I will. And I was going to read this, but I don't have time. Let me summarize. But he warns us 
about trying to uh, figure out the sovereignty of God apart from the way God reveals Himself in Scripture. And let me just say this, and I'm getting a little off. But every time in Scripture where God asserts His sovereignty in some way, He always follows it up with like a verse we find in Isaiah 45. There in that chapter, He kind of asserts His sovereignty. I'm the Creator. I am the Lord God. There's none like me. Before you end up leaving that chapter, he says, Look unto me and be saved all ye ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none other. And those folks that go to like uh, Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9, and, and basically you know, God is, is saying that he has a sovereign right to make a Gentile a spiritual Jew. But when you get to chapter 10, how does it follow up? Whosoever calleth on the name, whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Just, just, just about every time I can find that God in any way asserts his sovereignty, you also look for how that he shows his mercy. That's the God we serve. I'm gonna read this hurriedly. I got just a few minutes. I want to at least read to you. A.W. Tozer. A lot of scholars don't like him. Uh, he was a self-taught scholar. Let me read this hurriedly. Here is my view. God's sov- God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, it does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it, insomuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice man should make, but that that he should be free To make it. I love this part. He says, man's will is free because God is sovereign. He goes on and says this. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. End of quote. Now, folks, listen to me. These people that are jumping off in these different camps and, and, and they're, they're trying to explain the sovereignty of God, it's like I heard Brother Reynolds say when we were debating uh, uh, some a Calvinist back in the 80s. He said, I'll tell you what kind of God you're talking about. You're talking about an idol God that functions that way. And folks, a lot of people nowadays, the Reformed Baptists and a lot of different groups, their God, the way they explain God and His sovereignty, it's more like Allah or Molech or some other idol God. The true and living God is right here. Let me just say it this way, okay? You don't need to be in a camp. You don't need to be a Calvinist. You don't need to be an Arminian. You don't need to be a a molest. You don't need to be an open theist. You just simply need to believe the word of God. 
Believe what God says about himself. Amen? All right, I got 10 minutes. My second theological nuance. This chapter, chapter 38 of Genesis, is an extension of the war that started in the Garden of Eden between the serpent and the sea. The story of Judah and Tamar is a benchmark chapter of that war. And it extends all the way through the book of Revelation. In Genesis 3 and 15, we know what God said. He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God gives us an answer to the sin problem. It's the sending of his only begotten son. And when he declared that, he also declared war. I just want to call it, as I've already said, the war between the serpent and the sea. God tells us how he's going to handle the sin problem. Through the promised seed. That's chapter 3. In chapter 4, we, we have the first murder. Satan is a murderer. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies and he is the father of murder. He moved Cain to kill his brother Abel. Well, take your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. Write that on your outline. It says this, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. Fortunately, by the end of the chapter, uh, Adam knew his wife Eve, and there was another son born, and his name was Seth. In chapter 5, we have some of those begats, some of those, that chapter we like to skip over, the genealogies. It's a whole list of begats. And, and as far as I'm concerned, every generation in those, in those begats are important. They were important to God. He put them in His holy words. And what God does is connect the righteous seed to Noah with a list of ten generations. And through the rest of the book of Genesis, we're tracing the promised seed. He called Abraham. Uh, out of Mesopotamia, made a promise with him and said, Of thy seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. There's this promise, there's this hope, there's this searching for the, for, uh, the seed of the woman that was mentioned in Genesis 3 and 15. In chapter 38, the promised seed is on the brink of extinction. This is how God preserved this promised seed in the sewage of sin and rebellion. This war continued on. The, the very next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, what's the first thing we read up there? Pharaoh, he's killing all the male children born to the Hebrew women. This is the war between the serpent and the seed. It goes on and on. You know, God chose a nation. He chose that nation and Abraham, right? He chose Judah as the tribe from which the Messiah would be born. 
He later chooses a family. The family of David. You remember Brother Moran's lesson? You remember about the killing of all the royal seed and only one escaped? Jezebel's daughter killed all the royal seed with the exception of one. You know what that is? That's the war between the serpent and the seed. The New Testament opens up with the genealogies of Jesus Christ to connect you with the promised seed. And you know what happens immediately? Right after Christ was born, Herod does the same thing Pharaoh did and kills all the babies in Bethlehem. What is that? Why? That's the war between the serpent and the seed. Jesus Christ, he brought the kingdom of God to this earth. He died on the cross of Calvary for our sins. He resurrected on the third day. He ascended to glory and he left his church in the world. And that church is the redeemed seed of God. Including all those people Brother John Elliott talked about in Romans chapter 16. You know, all those relationships of different people from different backgrounds, from different standards of life, stations of life. They were all in the family of God. They were all the redeemed seed. Write this verse down. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. It says, yet it, and this is the chapter concerning the death of Jesus Christ. We know, 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Let me read you verse 10. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when he shall make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. What about the other crucifixion chapter? Psalms 22 and verse 30. There in that psalm, it talks about him piercing his hands at his feet. And it says this, a seed shall serve him. It should be accounted to the Lord for a generation. All right, let's fast forward to Revelation chapter 12. We got the woman clothed in the sun. Folks, that woman in the 12th chapter of Revelation is the church of Jesus Christ. And the red dragon is right there. Right there. She's she's in travail. She's about to give birth. The Bible tells us in the 12th chapter of Revelation, she's about to give birth to a man child. And the red dragon is about to devour him and destroy him. And he's called up into the heavens. Let me me say this, okay, because I've heard some young preachers here recently, and they're just way off on their interpretation of this. I believe like Brother W.T. Russell, Brother William House, some of them old preachers. The church didn't give birth to Jesus Christ. Okay, The context, you read a little further down in here, like in verse 11, and it tells us that these were the martyrs. And there were those of them that were called up to God. Those of them that gave the ultimate, made the ultimate sacrifice. They gave their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in my estimation, they become the 144,000 and the souls that reign with Christ a thousand years. But I believe like W.T. Russell, these were the martyrs. When you get to, read the last verse, Revelation chapter 12, read the very last verse. 
Read verse 17 of Revelation chapter... Was, was W.T. Russell a former pastor here? Okay, well, then y'all probably all believe like me too then. Or you should. Maybe not, that's all right. There's some leeway here. But anyway, read verse 17. It says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you, the war between the serpent and the seed, it still goes on. And it seems like Satan in our day is throwing the kitchen sink at our churches. Uh, and I don't know if you worry about the immorality in our society. I don't know if you worry about the immorality that's coming into our churches, but I do. We live in some dark times. And it seems like we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into this darkness of depravity. But I want to assure you, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. The lion of the tribe of Judah did prevail. The lion of the tribe of Judah will prevail the lion of the tribe of Judah has always and always will prevail. Jesus said this, and I believe it with all my heart. Okay, I know things get dark. We worry about the condition of our churches and the continuation of our churches. But I tell you, <laughs> Satan and sinful man cannot overthrow the promises of Almighty God. Jesus told us that he would establish his church. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates, and though that word gates means all the attacks of Satan and his utilizing of our depravity and the sinfulness of man, they will not overthrow, they will not prevail against us. God bless you is my prayer. I'm done.